Welcome to Dialogue Minnesota, conversations about the issues that matter to you. I'm your host, Jim Dubois. Supreme Court Justice Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation process was the most contentious in modern history. What are the long-term impacts on the High Court, the U.S. Senate, and Justice Kavanaugh himself? Today on Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Morris alumni distinguished professor of political science Timothy Johnson shares his insights on the fallout from the Kavanaugh confirmation. We caught up with him at his office on the U of M campus. Professor Johnson, welcome back to Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me. It seems like the entire country, including politicians on both sides of the aisle, were unhappy for one reason or another with the process of Brett Kavanaugh's confirmation hearings. What is your sense of how this process played out and how damaging was this confirmation process to the Supreme Court or the Senate as institutions? I think it played out probably as poorly as it could have played out. And I think everybody had that sense from folks on the far right to folks on the far left to everybody in the middle. Um, It was just sort of the worst of politics. And and we often talk in political science of one of the reasons the public doesn't like Congress is that it sees the sausage being made. And we literally saw the sausage being made of both someone who had accused a Supreme Court nominee of a crime, essentially, and that is uh, Professor Blasey Ford, uh, but then also that nominee fighting back um, to respond to those charges, and all of it ended up seeming quite unseemly. I'm not sure it can hurt the Senate a whole lot more than it's already been hurt. I mean, the numbers on the Senate and Congress in particular are quite low in terms of public approval of how Congress and the Senate works in particular. I do think there's going to be, at a minimum, a short-term effect for the U.S. Supreme Court, where the court is going to maybe lose a a tad bit of legitimacy. At a minimum, it will probably lose some percentage points on public approval. We know historically over time that those numbers for the court will probably go back up because it is revered as our greatest of the three institutions of government by most accounts over time as well. So there will be a hit for both. I think the court will probably weather it better than the Senate. Many comparisons have been made to Justice Clarence Thomas's confirmation and the accusation of sexual harassment brought by Anita Hill. Do you think that process has affected Thomas's tenure on the high court? You know, I think in the end it did not. I do believe that it probably had an effect early on. There are some anecdotal accounts that the justices were relatively cold to him early on. Uh, but what happens is once you're on the court, you become a member of the family. And so even if you are the black sheep of the family or you are someone who has had problems like a Justice Thomas did or now Justice Kavanaugh did, even those folks who might be on the out early on are usually brought back into the fold. And I think that in the end, Justice Thomas is a pretty well-loved member of the court, not only by his colleagues, but by the clerks and the vast majority of the court staff. I suspect that over time, the same will happen with Justice Kavanaugh. The difference here is one of degrees, right? Justice Thomas was accused of sexual harassment. Justice Kavanaugh was accused of sexual assault. And only time will tell how those particular allegations will play out on the court for Justice Kavanaugh. What are the major similarities between the Thomas and Kavanaugh hearings, and what has changed in the intervening years? Do you think the Me Too movement 
made an impact this year? I think that absolutely had an impact, right? We did not see as much of a push on Justice Thomas as we did now. Now, of course, there was a major push and there were major protests, but with the advent of the Me Too movement, with the advent of social media more generally, you had a much bigger backlash early on. I think that the backlash of not the nomination, but of ultimately the confirmation was seen the next year for Justice Thomas, and that was in the year of the woman, where there was a massive wave of women who came into the Senate and elsewhere within our government at all levels. The backlash started much earlier and was much easier to coalesce, if you will, because of social media. What is the same about the Kavanaugh hearings is that nothing changed. The Senate never came up with rules to deal with allegations of sexual harassment or sexual assault. They just sort of let what happened in the Clarence Thomas hearings die away into history, if you will. And I don't think that anyone in the Senate foresaw that this would come back up. And of course it did with a much bigger bang this time. And you still had three senators on the Judiciary Committee this time who were on the Judiciary Committee during the Clarence Thomas hearings. And it's really pretty clear that not much was learned. Well, there certainly have been some very contentious hearings for potential Supreme Court justices in the past. How does the Justice Kavanaugh hearing compare to some of those other contentious hearings uh, throughout history? Yeah, I would say this. I think that the place that the Kavanaugh hearings differ is that they really became so bald-faced partisan. There was the fight over Robert Bork in 1987, and that was clearly a partisan fight, but it was kept on a legal level. When the Democrats fought him, when Ted Kennedy questioned him, they were questioning very strongly about his judicial attitudes, his judicial beliefs, the writings that he had uh, had all over the place in, in about every law review that you could name. And so while it was a pretty harsh fight, you could very much see that it was on the level of, is this someone we want on the Supreme Court for how he would be as a justice? Of course, the Clarence Thomas hearings, as we've already talked about, were quite controversial. It's an interesting contrast because Justice Thomas was quite angry when he came and had his response to Anita Hill, but it was much more measured. There was vitriol very clearly in his voice, but he did not yell, he did not scream, and in fact, in the end, he turned the argument on the senators, which was a panel of all white males at the time, and the famous phrase that comes out of this is he said, this is a high-tech lynching of me, an African-American man who's been nominated to the court. And I will tell you this, it was a very clever move on his part, whether he intended that or not, because it really closed down the white male Democrats because they were worried in the end that if they continued to attack him, that that lynching analogy would go further and further and they just shut down. Those may have been the two most controversial in history, but certainly they are not the most controversial nominations. Of course, Louis Brandeis, when he was the first person of Jewish descent nominated to the bench in the early 1900s, that caused lots of controversy, but we didn't have hearings back then. There was some controversy with Nixon's first two choices before he chose Harry Blackman, but the real fireworks really have happened. Bork, Thomas, Kavanaugh, and even the intervening justices had no controversy in the way that these three have had it. We're talking with Tim Johnson. He's a Moore's alumni distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota. Justice Kavanaugh received support from many law professionals and organizations, but some of them pulled their support after his testimony. 
Notably, former Justice John Paul Stevens said Kavanaugh should not serve on the court after his testimony. Was it simply the accusation of sexual assault that caused many to retract their initial support, or was it the perception that Kavanaugh's comments were politicized? Yeah, it turns out that if you were on the side of not wanting confirmation for Judge Kavanaugh, you didn't need to go as far as sexual assault. And that's what former Justice Stevens did. What he did was say, look, the way that this nominee has acted, one, it's possibly clear, I guess, that he lied under oath to some of the questions. And the other is he simply, A, did not look like he had the judicial temperament as he was yelling at members of the Senate. And the other part of the judicial temperament was, it was unclear that, in fact, he would then be able to play collegially with other members of the court because as he was yelling, he was actually making partisan arguments. It was those three arguments that I think led Stevens, as well as many other legal professionals, both in and out of the judicial system, to say we need to pull our support. And again, I'll reiterate. It turns out they didn't need to go as far as the sexual assault to do so. Those retractions were based almost exclusively on the actions of Judge Kavanaugh during the hearings. How common is it for a justice's ideology to evolve with time? We've seen conservative justices appointed by Republican presidents who over time have become quite liberal in their rulings. Tell us more about that process and maybe cite a couple of justices throughout history where that has been the case. Sure. So political scientists refer to this as ideological drift. And what we do know statistically is that most justices, at least in their first decade on the bench, stay pretty true to the ideology of the president who nominated them. So if you have someone who's relatively liberal, she will stay relatively liberal, at least for that time period. If you've got someone who's more conservative, she will stay conservative in her leanings and her voting for most of that initial time. But there are justices over time who have indeed changed, as you suggest in your question. And I can give you some very good examples. Justice Blackmun, nominated by President Nixon, was considered the second or third most conservative justice on the bench when he was nominated and then confirmed. And it turns out he was the second or first most liberal justice on the bench by the time he retired in 1994. Justice Stevens, whom we've already chatted about, ended up being quite liberal, even though he was nominated by President Ford in 1970. 75, again, another Republican president, although Justice Stevens actually disputed this notion and made the argument on 60 Minutes shortly after his retirement in 2009 that he, in fact, was just as conservative in 2009 as he was in 1975, but that the court changed around him. The data tell a slightly different story, but his point is well taken. And then on the other side, uh, the most famous example is probably Justice Byron White, who was nominated by John Kennedy. One would assume that he would have stayed relatively liberal, and he became quite a bit more conservative over his tenure on the bench, in particular on issues of criminal rights. And so you can see it in both ways, whichever president from whichever party nominates. That said, most justices, most of the time, stay pretty true to the president who nominated them. Justice Scalia stayed very conservative. Justice Marshall stayed very liberal throughout their entire tenure on the bench. How did previous Supreme Courts retain a sense of objectivity and neutral politics? You know, I think that there was a lot more protection. So, for instance, not until Justice Sandra Day O'Connor uh, went through her confirmation process in 1981 did we have wall-to-wall -wall coverage on television of the confirmation hearings. So, it, really, the court is shrouded in secrecy a lot more than any of our other branches. And this is one of the reasons I love to teach about the court is you can turn on 
on the TV any day and watch C-SPAN if you would like and see what's happening in Congress. The president, whomever he is at the time, is on TV anytime he would like to be. The justices are not. They don't videotape their oral arguments. They don't have those arguments up on TV. Even though you can listen to the audio, it takes work to do so. Um, And so one of the ways that the justices really retains a sense of objectivity and us believing in that objectivity is they really do quite literally sit in their ivory tower and make decisions. The justices also, from time to time, if there are particularly controversial decisions, will not have a specific justice sign an opinion. They will sign it by the court or per curiam in Latin. So, for instance, in Bush versus Gore, there is not a name on that opinion. There were a whole host of dissents and concurring opinions, but there was not a name on the majority that ultimately decided that case. The point is the court will go to great lengths to try to preserve itself as a very austere a very objective, a very private institution, and the justices like it that way because being out of the spotlight allows them to stay away from partisanship and ideology and all of the bickering that goes on in Washington. When Dialogue Minnesota returns, more of our conversation with University of Minnesota Morse alumni, distinguished professor of political science, Timothy Johnson. Now, more of our conversation with University of Minnesota Morse alumni, distinguished professor of political science, Timothy Johnson, on the fallout from Justice Brett Kavanaugh's contentious Supreme Court confirmation process. Why has the Supreme Court become so politicized in recent years? I think the court has become politicized very much over some very specific issues. It continues to be politicized over abortion rights, and we'll see what happens now that there's a very clear conservative majority to overturn Roe versus Wade. Although I will say this, Justice Blackmun was interviewed both before the 1989 term when the court heard Webster versus Reproductive Health Services, and again before the 92 term when it heard Planned Parenthood versus Casey, and he was almost in mourning in both of those interviews and said, look, Roe is dead, it's going away. And in neither case did the court end up overturning it. So who knows what will happen, but you've got abortion rights. Today, we've got campaign finance, which is very clearly the issue, which is going to help determine who's going to be in offices from the the lowest level on the local level, all the way up to the federal government. And the court does have things to say about this and has made very clear rulings about how money can be spent, who can spend the money, who can give the money. And that has become a very hot button issue when campaign finance is clearly a partisan one. Um, free speech issues. So the court is now deciding issues uh, as to whether or not individuals have the right to free speech alone or whether maybe corporations also have the right to free speech. And then it's making decisions about very important policy issues in the United States. Last term, it decided whether or not public unions could force all of the people who work within a particular uh, sector pay for union dues, and the court said it couldn't uh, in the Janus decision. My point is the court actually hears some of the most important issues that we decide in the United States, and when it speaks, everybody listens. I will be the first to say, although others say it as well, that the court is actually not all that controversial. Most of its decisions are eight to one or nine nothing, but it's those five fours on some of the issues that I mentioned here and others that make it highly politicized and make us want to make sure that our men and our women are on the bench and not the other sides. Well, let's talk specifically about the impact of Roe v. Wade, a decision uh, that uh, was made by the court back in 1973. What impact 
did that decision have on Supreme Court picks and the partisan divide in the years that followed Roe v. Wade? Yeah, I would say that initially there was not a huge change, right? President Ford picked John Paul Stevens, and I don't think that that had a whole lot to do with uh, abortion politics. But when President Reagan won in 1980, he made it very clear uh, that beyond the fact that he wanted to put the first woman on the bench, and he did with Sandra Day O'Connor, um, he made it very clear that he had a litmus test and, and his justices needed to be be pro-life and they needed to be ones who would be a solid vote to overturn Roe versus Wade. And so abortion became a big issue in every confirmation battle and it has only gotten worse. The interesting thing about this is that abortion rights is only one example of a highly controversial case that the justices decide. And it, in some sense, might be dangerous for any side to pick a nominee on just one issue because you don't know how he or she is going to decide on a whole host of other issues. Now, you have some intuition as to how that will play out, but we don't know for sure. Um, and so abortion rights, in the end, has become front and center on almost every Supreme Court nomination, even though it is still only one issue area that the justices decide about on a regular basis. Much has been made of Justice Kennedy's departure from the high court, the seat Kavanaugh obviously replaced, because he was often the swing vote on the court. Tell us more about Kennedy's legacy. How often did his swing vote come into play, and how different will the court be without him? Let me start with how often his swing vote came into play. Turns out, statistically, Justice Kennedy, in 20 of his 31 terms, was in five four majorities more than any other justice on the bench. Let me put that another way. If there was a 5-4 decision, Justice Kennedy was in most of the five-person majorities in 20 out of his 31 terms, so more than any of his other colleagues, meaning that if there was a controversial case, he was in that majority more often than anybody else. Now, how does that translate? There's nine justices on the bench. We know that the chief justice assigned to rights majority opinions. And if you expected everyone to have an equal share, you would expect everyone to have about 11% of the majority opinions in their chamber that they would be writing. And we know that that's not the case, that there is some variation. Justice Kennedy, not only in those 5-4 decisions, but across all cases during his tenure on the bench, he wrote 11 percent of all conservative opinions while he was on the bench. And that is only behind Justice Scalia and Justice Rehnquist, meaning that he wrote a whole lot. 11 percent doesn't seem like a lot, but all else equal, 11 percent ends up being quite a lot, especially when you hear the next statistic. Justice Kennedy wrote 11 percent of all liberal opinions while he was on the bench, meaning that he was the key member of both liberal majorities and conservative majorities. I used to say to my students that Justice Sandra Day O'Connor was the single most powerful person in Washington, D.C., and when she retired, it turns out that it was Justice Kennedy who was the single most powerful person in D.C. because he held the two four-person majorities in his hands and he would go to one side or the other. You bring this back to Judge Kavanaugh's nomination and now Justice Kavanaugh, this is why the left was so upset about this particular nomination. And they would have been upset no matter who it would have been. Because Justice Kennedy is the swing justice, as those statistics suggest, Justice Kavanaugh 
by all accounts, will be the first or second most conservative justice on the bench now. And so you are taking a moderate off of the bench, replacing him with someone who is extraordinarily conservative. That changes the balance of the bench. It's what we call in political science and legal circles a critical nomination. It is also why the Democrats fought so hard against Judge Robert Bork in 1987, and they were much more effective, and they made sure that he did not get on the bench, because at that time, he was going to replace uh, Lewis Powell, and Powell was in the same position as Kennedy, a right-leaning moderate who would rule with either side, sometimes the liberals, sometimes the conservatives, and not change the balance of the court. So let me say one last thing about this. Why were the Democrats not upset about Justice Scalia or not as upset about Justice Gorsuch? Because you were replacing a conservative with a conservative. It wasn't changing the balance of the bench. Did the left like those nominations? No, but they weren't worth fighting as vociferously for the simple reason that it wasn't changing things. Kavanaugh is changing the balance of the bench in the exact same way that Bork would have done in 1987. Our guest is Tim Johnson. He's a Moore's alumni distinguished professor of political science and law at the University of Minnesota. After his controversial testimony, Justice Kavanaugh wrote an op-ed stating that he will be an impartial judge. How can he show the American people that he will do so? And for that matter, how can any of the current justices do the same? Yeah, the only way that this works is that if justices actually jump over, if you will, ideological lines. The best example of this is probably Chief Justice Roberts voting to uphold the ACA or commonly known as Obamacare. And he said, look, I can and will from time to time side with my liberal colleagues if, in fact, I believe that that is the right policy choice and the right legal choice. Judge Kavanaugh, I think, will go a long way by showing himself to be a moderate, at least for a while. That will build his political capital, if you will, and then he can use his political, or maybe in this case legal capital, to start making more conservative decisions as time goes on. The only way you show that you're going to be a team player is to actually be a team player. And I will say this, really almost every justice on the Supreme Court is a team player. Even Justice Scalia, who would more often than not say to his colleagues, I'm right, you're wrong, I'm going to write a separate opinion all by myself, I don't want anyone else to sign it so I can be as upset as I want if it's dissent or be as snarky as I want in a concurrence. Even he wrote a fair amount with his colleague Ruth Bader Ginsburg, with his colleague Thurgood Marshall for a bit, with his colleague William Brennan for a bit. The point is, every justice ends up playing well with others because it is a collegial body and they have norms to make things more collegial. We don't see them. With the growing distrust and scrutiny of the high court, how do you think Chief Justice Roberts will lead the court going forward? On a very simple level, the chief is now the median justice on the bench, meaning where Justice Kennedy was the median justice and he was a swing vote, that is exactly where the chief is now, except he is a whole lot more conservative than Justice Kennedy. I think that he is going to lead the court at this point to make sure that it tries to stay out of controversial decisions for as long as possible. The court can't always ignore them, but try to keep the court deciding cases that are not going to raise the ire of the body politic in the United States at least for some time. I think that it is possible that he might vote with the liberal bloc from time to time in order to say, look, I am not just someone who will vote with my ideological allies every single time a case comes to us. 
And I also think that he will do everything he can as Chief Justice of the United States, not just Chief Justice of the court. Remember, the title is Chief Justice of the United States, to go around and talk to folks about the court as an institution, build up its legitimacy. In fact, he is speaking here at the University of Minnesota, and I bet he will speak at least a little bit about the court's legitimacy as an institution. Liberals worry that the court is vastly more conservative now in its uh, current iteration than the majority of Americans. While conservatives have contended that the uh, liberal court has ruled over a more conservative public for quite a number of years. How important is public opinion to the Supreme Court when it renders decisions? And uh, if it is important or not, should it be? Yeah, so the jury is out on that, right? There is evidence on both sides um, as to how much public opinion affects the court. But there's some pretty good evidence, some that came from a couple of my former graduate students, in fact, here at Minnesota, that suggests that the court does not stray too far too often from the views of the public. That is, if the court is not in step most of the time with the public, then the public will not follow its decisions, right? The court can't enforce its decisions. The only power it has is its legitimacy. And if the public decides that the court is an illegitimate institution, you will see members of the public, either small or larger groups, saying the court's not legitimate, we can't listen to it. Now, would that really happen? I can give you specific examples when it has, but what I will tell you is the justices think about that happening. And by the fact that they think about it happening, public opinion absolutely indirectly affects those decisions. In some sense, it constrains them so the justices don't jump out of step too far. So actually, I will give you one example. The justices obviously were out of step with at least a good amount of the public when it decided Brown versus the Board of Education in 1954. It then, in some sense, retrenched for the rest of the 1950s and didn't make radically liberal opinions, even though it was already the Warren Court. It wasn't until the mid-60s that the Warren Court broke open again and started making quite liberal decisions on civil liberties and civil rights issues. And so if the court does something that is out of step with the public, it will, for the most part, quiet itself for a little while. All of this is to say, in the end, that absolutely public opinion does have an effect on how the court decides, but it's probably mostly an indirect effect. We know that there's a possibility the Democratic Party could seize control of the House again following the elections on uh, November 6th, the U.S. House of Representatives. There will certainly be those in the party who will call for the House taking action. Is there a scenario where there might be a call for the impeachment of Justice Kavanaugh, particularly if some piece of evidence surfaces uh, in the weeks ahead that indicates there might have been uh, something to legitimize the accusation that was made against him by Dr. Blasey Ford. Yes, yeah, so I've told many people this, not not professionally yet, not on air, but I'll say it here now as I've talked to many friends and, and colleagues who've asked about this. I think that this would be the worst case scenario for the United States because it would be very, very bloody uh, for both parties. I think both parties would end up looking very bad, and it would clearly be bad for the legitimacy of the United States Supreme Court. But there is absolutely a scenario under which this could happen, and that is exactly what you said. We both know there are probably very enterprising members of the press who are still digging into Judge Kavanaugh's past. I think we would all be fools to think that that's not the case. If evidence is found, and that is direct evidence, not allegations, but direct evidence that he did sexually assault not just Professor Blase Ford, but anybody else, then I think it would be 
almost impossible to not have impeachment hearings. But the bar would have to be very high. Absolutely, positively, there would have to be direct, absolutely corroborated evidence that shows that he did commit this crime. Even if the statute of limitations is gone by, that might be enough to bring impeachment proceedings. Would it be seen as highly partisan and highly political? Of course it would. And that's why the Democrats would need to be very careful and not do it unless that other statement is true, and that is they have absolute corroborating evidence. But again, this would be really bad for the country. And that's one of the reasons I wondered, and I think many wondered, why the president simply did not pull Judge Kavanaugh's nomination because there are a whole host of other lower court judges lined up behind Judge Kavanaugh who were equally as conservative, equally as willing to possibly overturn Roe versus Wade, who did not have the baggage that he ultimately seems to have had. Time will tell, but I'll reiterate one last time, it would not be good for the country if impeachment proceedings began. Timothy Johnson is the Moore's Alumni Distinguished Professor of Political Science and Law at the University of Minnesota. Professor Johnson, thanks so much for joining us again on Dialogue Minnesota. Thanks for having me, Jim. The midterm elections are fast approaching. On the next Dialogue Minnesota, University of Minnesota Associate Professor of Political Science Catherine Pearson joins us for a look at where things stand during the final days of campaigning. I'm Jim Dubois. Thanks for joining us on Dialogue Minnesota. We'll see you again next week.